Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ plus sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies Women's Rugby Club, and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC, and I'm a diehard sports fan. I've played with many of the Team DC member clubs, including the DC Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the DC Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome, everyone. Gabe and Laura here. It's April 5th, and you're listening to Under the Bleachers. On this podcast, we take turns, and this week, it's Laura's turn to choose our topics. For our discussion of all things queer, she chose the Vatican's recent statement on gay marriage. For our conversation of all things sports, we're talking about the U.S. national soccer team. And for our topic of the intersection of sports and queer, we're talking about the battle against trans athletes. After that, we're going to share our interview with Team DC member club, the DC Different Drummers. First, a quick update on Team DC. Team DC and its member clubs continue to partner with Nelly's Sports Bar for the Heroes for Heroes campaign, providing free meals to DC's frontline workers. Recent deliveries were made to the Wanda Alston House and Community of Hope Clinic and Birthing Center. For a starting donation of just $50, you or your organization can help sponsor one of these meals. If you are interested, please contact Brent Miner at brent at teamdc.org. As COVID restrictions start to ease, member clubs are beginning to increase their activities. Be sure to follow Team DC and its member clubs on social media for updates. Find Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Twitter and Instagram at Team DC. Laura and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com on Apple Podcast and on Google Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Taking the extra few seconds to hit those buttons or to type a quick review means a lot to help us get the word out. So please do that. And share us with a friend or two if you know people that might be interested in listening in. With that, here's Laura with our first topic in this week's trip under the bleachers. All right. First, our queer topic. I'm going to go back a couple of weeks to something that happened during our off season because it really stuck with me and it's Easter weekend. So I feel like it's the perfect time to talk about it. (laughs) Okay. On uh, March 15th, the Vatican issued a two page answer to the question of whether Catholic clergy could bless gay unions meaning gay marriages. The answer from the Vatican was a resounding no. In a two-page document, which was published in seven different languages and signed by Pope Francis, the Catholic Church had the following to say, quote, it is not licit to impart a blessing on relationships or partnerships, even stable, that involve sexual activity outside of a marriage, i.e. outside of the indissoluble union of a man and a woman open in itself to the transmission of life, as is the case of the unions between persons of the same sex. The presence in such relationships of positive elements, which are in themselves to be valued and appreciated, cannot justify these relationships and render them legitimate objects of an ecclesial blessing, since the positive elements exist within the context of a union not ordered to the creator's plan. If you had trouble following that, I'd say, in other words, the Vatican holds that uh, gays should be treated with dignity and respect, but gay sex is intrinsically disordered. Catholic teaching holds that marriage between a man and a woman is part of God's plan and is intended for the sake of creating new life. And since gay unions are not intended to be part of that plan, they cannot be blessed by the church. 
The Vatican would also like us to know, quote, the Christian community and its pastors are called to welcome with respect and sensitivity persons with homosexual inclinations and will know how to find the most appropriate ways consistent with church teaching to proclaim to them the gospel in its fullness. At the same time, they should recognize the genuine nearness of the church, which prays for them, accompanies them, and shares their journey of Christian faith, and receive the teachings with sincere openness. In other words, Christians should be nice to the gays, pray for them, and help them receive the message of the church that they are dirty, rotten sinners. Pope Francis has previously endorsed providing gay couples with legal protections in same-sex unions, but that was in reference to civil marriage, not within the church. He has repeatedly made statements that queer Catholics have proclaimed were evidence that the church is evolving on LGBTQ plus rights. Pope Francis has even graced the cover of The Advocate. But if there was ever any doubt about where the Catholic Church stands on the issue of gay rights, the Vatican made it pretty clear a couple of weeks ago when it issued a statement signed by the Pope that says gay marriage is not okay because God, quote, does not and cannot bless sin. So, Gabe, a lot of people were uh, surprised at this ruling from the Vatican. I'm curious, were you surprised at all? Um, no. And speaking as the former Miss Vatican City, um, <laughs> And a yeah, gay Catholic. I was not surprised at all. And I'm kind of like, this is news, kind of. I mean, I, I I get why people were upset and kind of saw it coming. But as a gay Catholic, I'm like, yeah, we know that. Like, we've been told that for years and forever. Like, yeah, this is nothing been, new. This has been something that's been bugging me a lot um, since Pope Francis has been on the scene. A lot of people have been talking as if he was some kind of a revolutionary and everything was changing. And I was just like, you are not listening carefully enough because for all of his, you know, sure, let him get married in a courthouse rhetoric, which, you know, is better than what's happening to gay people in a lot of parts of the world. um, He never backed away from hate the sin love the sinner he has never backed away at all from the inherent teachings of the catholic church that that engaging in homosexual activity is a sin and you're considered disordered um and your relationship is considered disordered so you know for me i've mostly been annoyed at the catholics who have been trying to hold pope francis up on a pedestal and claim that it means the catholic church is suddenly more pro lgbtq and so this was kind of almost like a vindication for me <laughs> but that having been said um i am a reformed catholic i uh, was raised catholic and no longer practice i know that you are still a practicing catholic i respect that although you know I have my feelings about Catholicism, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you weren't surprised. I'm glad that you weren't one of these people who had fooled yourself into thinking that Catholics suddenly were blessing gay marriage. And it's one of those things where like, I mean, I'm even talked to some of my, um, some of my priest friends and stuff like that. And some of them that like are maybe gay priests, because there are definitely gay priests. There was a couple that just came out, uh, on the news after this, this came out and they're saying, Hey, we're gay priests. Um, the one thing people have to also realize that this is a the, the Catholic Church is basically a huge CEO like the pope the pope is a CEO of a Catholic business as in like the most wealthy organization in the world in the world okay so the Vatican <laughs> by far and the Holy See they're basically a corporation and they are a world you know worldwide corporation and so if they were to say anything about anything progressive they would lose parts of the world and they don't want to do that I mean, it's interesting to me because I don't know where the Catholic Church goes from here, right? Like the Catholic Church for years has been saying that they have a crisis in that they don't have enough people going into the clergy. Um, They don't have as many people practicing the faith. I mean, obviously, there are still millions of people all over the world, but I I don't know where the Catholic Church thinks it goes from here. Um, 
I do think, and you know, it's interesting to me that there are gay priests because, you know, technically the Catholic Church doesn't say it's a sin to be gay. They say it's it's a sin to engage in to homosexual in, acts. Yeah. And since priests, you know, take a vow of celibacy anyway, you know, presumably there's no um, problem with being a gay priest um, because if you're living up to your sacrament, you know, to your vows, um, you're not engaging in any homosexual acts. I, to me, and I, you know, I'm not to um, disparage people because I think each person has to make the choice for themselves. But I, I have very hard time understanding how someone reconciles inside themselves being a gay priest, knowing that the church that they're devoting their life to in service uh, believes that there's something inherently wrong with their natural instincts. You know, to me, I can't understand how a person can do that. Now, obviously there are gay priests who have made their peace with it. And so to each their own, but I don't know what the Catholic church, uh, I don't know. I mean, how long until the Catholic Church allows priests to get married. I mean, I think that comes first, right? They are going to let straight marriages happen, marriages between a man and woman happen for priests before they ever bless gay marriage, right? Well, and then the interesting thing, too, is I think is the U.S. the only country where the clergy can officially marry someone? I don't know if it's the only. I, In fact, I doubt it. I mean, because I, I have a hard time believing in Italy that because well, you have to do you have to do like the civil marriage first well but you have to do that person. here also right like i no, mean but, like, priests... but a priest can like sign your form and that's considered correct you know, legal binding. Yeah. I, and i i guess i don't know i mean do our priests like i know really not have the legal authority to sign a marriage license not in other countries like i remember in mexico like when my my aunt or my aunt, my cousins got married and so we yeah. went down there and i had to be the witness but we had to go find a judge right and because the priest would not marry them unless they had a civil marriage right which i and i get that like i mean i think it's stupid that the united states see that was a mistake that the united states made from the beginning right i think they did it for simplicity they knew that a uh -huh. bunch of people were going to choose to get married in a church so they said well we'll just make the head of churches legally entitled to sign these papers because we don't care we just make the yeah. rules about, we can make anybody entitled <laughs> to sign these papers so why not make the head of the church and then it cuts down by 50 percent how many marriages we have to do they didn't realize they were setting themselves up for a huge fucking problem down the road because there was going to be a bunch of bigots who later were going to try to deny um legal rights to people based on their identity and tie and mash it all up and justify it by saying that marriage is a religious thing when really marriage is a contract it's a legal thing it's not it's a religious thing, you know yeah they should have kept them two very separate things right like if there was going to be a sacrament of marriage the legal ceremony should have been called something completely else something completely different and if they had done that they would have saved themselves a lot of grief but they didn't and here we are and i don't know i, I guess it's easter happy easter i gotta tell you guys the catholic church is not coming around on gay people so if you are a gay person or an ally who is able to in your mind in your heart in your soul draw some kind of a box around what the Catholic Church teaches about um, homosexuality and still be a practicing Catholic, go for it. I don't, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to tell you not to, but you need to be honest with yourself about, about what you're doing. You can't pretend somehow that the anti-gay bias isn't inherent in the Catholic Church because it is. Yeah. And it's, um, I was bringing that up because I remember what uh, Chasen Buttigieg posted and who's just said hey you know you know it's upsetting what the the statement that came out but hey we still got married you can still get married you can still do things like it sucks you can't do it in your church but don't let that don't let that deter you from getting married and living yeah. your life and if you can find a way in your own heart and mind to reconcile that and still want to be a part of that church then that's your choice i mean you can still get married with the very reverend lena let <laughs> david let <laughs> He is an of ordained course, priest. everybody can still get married that right like that's not really the issue in america you know really what it comes down to is like your identity like i personally think that having kids raised 
in a tradition where they're taught that homosexual acts are sin is going to necessarily have some negative psychological and emotional impact on on every one of those kids whose natural inclination is to engage in homosexual acts. I think it's got to be harmful. And I think for most of us who are raised that way, there are lingering negative impacts because there are other Christian faiths that you can subscribe to that have the basic same teachings that are the important core religious principles and don't include the teaching that, you know, it's not okay to be gay. So, you know, to me, I think that's preferable, but like I said, to each their own. No, totally. So let's see what happens. Hopefully. I mean, the Vatican has been around for years, but uh, you know, a couple centuries and stuff like that. So let's see, hopefully, Something might come with this, but I'm I'm not really thinking anything's going to change. Um, so that was fun. Uh, happy Easter to everyone. <laughs> so let's go oh, Easter season, because if you're Catholic, it's a season. It's not just a day. So the fabulous gowns, my favorite. It's a Tallulah Bankhead quote when she was at Easter Sunday. And I think it was the Archbishop of Chicago. And she said, darling, I love your dress, but your purse is fire. <laughs> Okay, so what's going on in the world of sports? All right, yeah, let's check in in the world of sports. There's tons going on. Um, the men's March Madness is wrapping up now. The final four games were played this weekend, and a new national champion will be crowned tonight. The women's tournament saw a surprise upset. As Also, this week was baseball's opening day. For some people, unfortunately, the opening day game between the Nationals and the Mets had to be postponed due to a Nats player testing positive for COVID. And the Mets baseball is back. (laughs) Limited fans are allowed back. And I am super excited for a real baseball season. But the topic I want to dive into this week is the U.S. national soccer team. Last week, the U.S. men's soccer team failed to qualify for the Olympic Games to be held this summer in Japan. This is the third consecutive Olympics that the U.S. men will miss, which qualifies as the team's longest drought in 50 years. The team's hopes for an Olympic berth officially ended when the U.S. lost to Honduras 2-1 in an Olympic qualifying tournament in Mexico. If you are surprised that the American men lost a soccer match to a team from a country that is roughly the size of the state of Ohio, you aren't the only one. (laughs) As soon as the results of that game were known, Twitter lit up with posts from fans, journalists, commentators, and the like, announcing, quote, U.S. soccer fails to qualify for Olympics, and, quote, the Americans won't be playing soccer in the Olympics. Similar headlines started posting online from news outlets of all sizes, and this really came as a surprise to many, particularly to the many, many, many fans of the U.S. women's national soccer team, and of course, the women on the roster who have probably already booked their flights to Tokyo. I bet they were pretty <laughs> The U.S. women's soccer team, who just won the World Cup in 2019, are, of course, heading to Tokyo for the Olympics this summer. In fact, the U.S. rolled through the 2020 CONCACAF Women's Olympic Qualifying Tournament, scoring 25 goals and allowing zero. The U.S. women's national team defeated Mexico 4-0 in the semifinal to earn its berth to Japan and then downed Canada 3-0 in the title game. The United States women's soccer team has never failed to qualify for an Olympic Games. They have played in every Olympics since 1996, which was the first year that women's soccer appeared in the Olympics, and they have won four gold medals and a silver. In fact, they have only failed to medal one time in 2016 when they shocked the world by placing fifth. They are by far the most successful women's Olympic soccer team in the world of all time. So... Why, last weekend, did my Twitter feed fill up with post after post after post telling me that the U.S. soccer team had failed to qualify for the Olympics? That's a rhetorical question. But let's get into it, Gabe. Why can't the clearly (laughs) superior women get any respect, and what do you think needs to change? Uh, Well, first off, you know what team did make it to Tokyo and is probably going to, you know, doing their World Cup qualifiers is the Mexican national team, which I am ecstatic, of course. I give you a little shout out for three. Their new jerseys are amazing. And I was dying when I saw on the website when it popped out. Have you Mara, seen their new Mexico. Have you seen I want to talk about the women. 
We'll talk about the women, but first off, have you seen the New Jerseys? No, I the actually Rosa haven't. Mexicana, they are gorgeous. And I'm just like dying to go get my jersey now. I was like, I don't need, I have like 10 Mexico jerseys and I'm like, I don't need another one. And then I saw this one. I was like, I mean, you can never have too many if they're different. So get different, what you want. They're I support beautiful. that. Stop being part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. Why can't the women get any damn respect? What do we need to do to get some respect out here for the amazing athletes that are the women's national soccer team in the United States, which I am laughing because they probably did like going into this tournament. We're like, yeah, we're going to Tokyo. We, 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 we booked our flights last year. We're just gonna, you know, we, we saved our miles and you know, we had to re because of the whole COVID thing had to redo it for this year, but no, it's insane. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you saw what was going on in the tournament, like clearly they were the favorites to go into the Conca like the CONCACAF tournament, uh, which is the regional qualifier in the Caribbean and North America for those soccer fans who don't know about CONCACAF. No, I mean, they didn't just win that tournament. They waltzed through it. Yeah. Is, is, is it surprising that regardless of what women do, no matter how much success they have, how dominant they are, nobody is ever going to pay attention to women's sports in the United States? Is it a foregone conclusion? I mean, and I don't know. I mean, because the, the, the argument that everybody brings up is like, oh, well, women's sports just doesn't bring in the money, doesn't bring in anything. But I was like, are you sure? Have you well, tapped out? Like, I mean, first of all, in soccer, that's not true. That's right? not women, true. Like, that's soccer, what in soccer, the women's team brings in more revenue in merchandising, advertisements, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. But, but putting that aside for one second, because here's the thing, right? Like, this is a chicken and egg problem for me, right? Like, things make money when people like them. People will like you them exposure more. exposure to them. And you, you actually, you know, invest in showing what they have. Right. You have to invest in building the team up and then getting it exposure so that people can get hyped up about it and then they'll start spending money on it. So what is like what is this whole thing when, you know, I mean, honestly, I can't name a single man on the U.S. men's soccer team and I can name a ton of women that are on the women's national team. Right. Like they. There, these ladies are like everywhere these days. I see them on Wheaties boxes. I see them in Nike commercials. You know, I, what more has to happen before um, people start? I, I just, I don't know. I'm baffled, honestly. I want to see, I, I need to see more women's sports on television. I think that's what it comes down to, honestly. I mean, I, I did think it was awesome that uh, President Biden invited uh, Megan Rapino and the entire team to come over for Women's Equality Pay Day. And yeah. they were actually in the White House. And I mean, that's a start actually bringing, you know, hey, we've got these amazing athletes that, again, listing all their accomplishments and what they've done just over and over and over again and just say, like, yeah, they're, uh, they don't get paid as much. Like when we were talking to uh, Joanna Loman uh, last week, if you heard our podcast, and she was just talking about like she always wanted to be a professional soccer player, but it just wasn't financially viable for. Yeah, a woman. you have to have like three part-time jobs on the yeah, side to, to do what you love. <laughs> Meanwhile, like you have a you know the her male counterpart is just like jumping on and gets like a huge sign-on bonus and, and is not nearly as whatever. talented or successful. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 well, but I and I don't know what it is, but I more women's sports need to be on television. And I don't know. I mean, again, we have this chicken and egg problem, right? Like, because the networks need to sell advertising, they need to be convinced, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we find ways in this country to build up industries when we want them to flourish. And maybe it's time that we find a way to build up women's sports so that they can flourish. No, yeah, totally agree. I mean, it's kind of, it's crazy that the U.S. did not. <laughs> I mean, it's what, twice already. <laughs> and we didn't even qualify the, for the World Cup last time. I, this is the third time in a row they failed to qualify for Olympics. That's, it's crazy. You're going out of, like, that's crazy. It's the Olympic, it's it's Olympics. It's a 12-year streak of not qualifying for the Olympics. You're one of the biggest countries, richest countries in the world, and you can't put together a soccer team that can beat Honduras like the number of people that live in Honduras can fit in our height in one high school gymnasium. We can't in the into this entire country. And they got hit by a hurricane. And they got hit by a hurricane last summer, and they can still get together uh, enough people. Like I don't know, U.S. men's soccer team. Please get your shit together so that we can cheer for you in the Olympics next time. 
But more importantly, somebody out there who's got some money, got some more brains about advertising and everything else than I do, please come up with a business plan, a game plan to figure out how we start marketing women's sports in this country so that women athletes can start being celebrated even a fraction as much as their less successful male counterparts. Um, but yes, uh, and to people out there, yes, support your women's uh, sports teams, especially your local sports teams. Turn on a match. There's, there, I mean, there's, there's, there's matches, there's games. Um, yeah, the, the women's final four is what, this weekend? Women's sports going on. Just take a look. I mean I'm not here to downplay how fun it is to watch men's sports. I love watching men's sports. I just want a little bit more of an equal playing field. Especially in the U.S. Because we have talent. All right, Laura. So what's going on in the intersect, the fabulous intersection of sports and queer? Ah, yes. We once again find ourselves at the intersection of sports and queer. Well, I'm here to tell you, Gabe, it is only April, but 2021 has already set a record. So far in 2021, more than 80 separate anti-trans bills have been announced in state legislatures across the country, which is more than any other year in history. And the anti-trans movement is showing no signs of slowing down. One of the newest arenas that this battle is being fought is in the world of sports. There are currently about 30 different bills spread over 20 different states being considered that would limit or prohibit trans athletes from competing in women's sports. Two of those became law this month, Mississippi and Arkansas. Tennessee's ban is just awaiting the governor's signature. Most of the proposed legislation looks to ban trans women from playing sports, and a Republican lawmaker in Minnesota went so far as introducing a bill that would classify trans girls and women playing sports as a misdemeanor, roughly equivalent in the state to possessing a small amount of marijuana. Proponents of these laws present various arguments that generally boil down to this. Males are naturally superior to women at athletics. Trans women are men and therefore are naturally superior at athletics than cis women, and we must ban them from sports so that they don't unfairly disadvantage our girls. This is so wrong on so many levels and is clearly not grounded in science, but that's what it is. Those are the arguments. And here we are once again forcing trans adults, trans kids, and parents of trans kids to turn out to legislative hearings to debate their very right to exist. And this time sports is the battleground. Gabe, are you surprised at the focus that sports is getting from anti-trans lawmakers in state houses across the country? Um, I'm surprised that it, it grew this fast. Like we had just talked about this in our last season. And it was just starting when we, we were talking about like Idaho and some other states. Um, but it's crazy how it's becoming more of a quote unquote problem and how all of a sudden I think it's the new flashy way to like distance people from the actual problems that are going on in the world right now and the uh. bigger fish we have to fry. And they're just like, hey, let's that that's a hot topic issue and we can do that. Let's do that. Like forget about yeah. gun rights and gun laws. Let's focus on trans kids because everyone's against that. And it's like, no, they're not. Well certain party is but i think that's what they're trying to do is just it's uh they're trying to distance themselves from other things that are going on and it sucks that we're focusing on trans kids and trans athletes because this wasn't an issue but now it's becoming the new flashy topic that is in the news now because you know just making it a misdemeanor if you're a trans athlete is just freaking nuts yeah i mean you can get arrested for playing tennis if you're a trans yeah, if you're, uh, yeah. girl in it's crazy. But, you know, I, I agree to some extent, you know, I think for a lot of people, this is one of those like, look over here, not over here kind of moves <laughs> that they make. I also think, though, you know, at the end of the day, certain class of lawmakers have forever been using um, others, otherisms to try to take away the power of people because they just want to centralize power and solidify power in the small little cluster of people who already have it right like they see that they are part of a governing class that has all the wealth in this country and all the power in this country and they want to keep it that way 
And so, you know, they just are stripping whole segments of the population of the ability to take away any of their power. Um, and this is just like, I think, you know, they didn't have as much success as they hoped they would with all their bathroom bills. Yeah. And so let's focus well, on well, how can we let's try again? Right. Because you know, they're, they're putting up these laws and they're ostensibly about sports. And, you know, obviously the initial impact would be on people playing sports, but what it's really doing is it's coming up with another creative way to write a law that says that trans people don't exist, right? The basis of all of these proposed laws is the fundamental belief and writing it into law, the idea that trans women are actually men right so they're calling them quote biological men or what however whatever term different terminology they choose to use in the legislation as they draft it what they're doing is finding a way to build into a state's law the very concept that trans women don't exist and by doing that you know the you know yes so you can't play tennis but the reality is it's a very small step than to taking every other right away from you because under the law, you don't exist as a woman anymore, right? So, you know, it's a, it's a not so clever, not so sneaky way of doing something much bigger than just taking away the ability for these women to play sports. Um, and right. it's, it, it, it's another way of, yeah, trying to erase trans people and just being like, hey, um, yeah, we tried a couple legislative sessions before to do something and that didn't work. So let's try this. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to protect our children playing sports and we need to have these, you know, we can't have these, you know, trans athletes uh, dominating our, you know, our, our children. So let's try this. And it's working on that fear and on just on, you know, people not understanding and not actually being open to having a conversation and feeding off of that. Yeah, well, the other thing is it depends on people willfully being ignorant, right? Like, yeah, they will just make statements. Oh, it's not safe because trans women um, are naturally bigger, too big or too strong or too heavy or whatever else they're going to say to and it's dangerous for um, them to play against cis women. And people just accept that without actually saying, wait, do you have any evidence to back that statement up right like to some people maybe it seems intuitive that it would be true but to others they just don't even stop to think about it they just hear it and accept it as a fact because somebody in a quote-unquote leadership position said it so it's you know it's a real testament to how poor of a job as Americans we do at critical thinking. But well, the thing that I want to know too is like, okay, how many trans athletes are being affected in Mississippi compared to how many athletes there are in general? And are we like going to exclude, we're making this huge, you know, law on this big old deal. And what if it's like, I don't know, 20 athletes in the state, 30 athletes. But you're, like, you're, the thing is, right, even if it's one athlete in the state, yeah, that's still like you're, the you're wrong making, way to use. It's like, the wrong way to do it. And you would never do that to any other community. So why why this community? You know, well, what, and that's the thing. Why. It's not true that you would never do it to any other community. Right. Oh. Like for years, for generations, these lawmakers who have had all the wealth and all the power in this country have been finding ways one way after another to try to keep entire segments of the population down so that they can keep all the money and all the power like that's yeah. all they really care about is all the money <laughs> but they need all the power so that they can keep rigging the game so that they can keep all the money like they're not dummies right <laughs> but it's it's really reprehensible. And I mean, just a couple of bullet points for anybody who hasn't done any reading. I, I'm happy. I'll put up in the show notes like some articles that you can go read and, you know, look into and do a little bit of your own uh, research. But, you know, the science that I've seen so far is not um, conclusive. I don't think there's been enough science yet. Yeah, there but, hasn't been enough research, and there hasn't. Yeah, really been but enough. the studies have tended towards saying that a transitioning or fully transitioned trans woman is not biologically faster, stronger, or bigger. Like none of these things that they claim are true are actually true. So, you know, 
I, I just think everybody go do your own research, but here, here's the other thing about it. Like don't get caught in the game, right? Like don't, it, it, the burden is not on you to prove that trans women are not dangerous. The burden is on these fuckers who are trying to pass laws to make it illegal to exist as a trans person to justify their actions, not yeah, the yeah. other way around. That's the root of the problem. Yeah. So don't get don't get pulled down into their nasty game. And and you know, at the end of the day, see this for what it is. All it really is is one more way for for people to try to strip the humanity from trans folks. And uh, enough is enough. <laughs> No, definitely. And I mean, if we have any viewers or viewers, if we have any listeners in these states, um, write to your local legislative officials, write to your governor, even if they know, you know, they're going to sign it, like, you know, sign these laws and stuff like that. But be a voice for someone and have these conversations with people and bring it up because that's the only way we're going to get these conversations going on and getting people actually involved. But I mean, we got to support our community. And yeah. And the reality but, is like, I can't even imagine how exhausting it must be for trans people the last few years, just having to again and again and again, try to fight just for their right to be themselves, right? Like they yeah. aren't asking for anything. They just want to be left <laughs> alone to live their lives. And they have to continuously show up and fight these battles just to be allowed to exist and i can't imagine the level of exhaustion that that must create in a human being and we need to not leave all of the responsibility for that only on trans folks those of yeah. us who you know are not being impacted directly by these laws but know how wrong they are need to help those folks out and help amplify their voices but also add our voice to the mix so that these people aren't out there always on their own doing all the work themselves i mean it's crazy but uh, what years ago was trans folks just wanted to use the bathroom now it's trans folks just want to play sports something we love they just want to play sports Okay, that's this week's Under the Bleachers Roundup of Things Queer, Things Sports, and the things at the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to share our interview with Team DC Member Club, DC's Different Drummers. Welcome back to Under the Bleachers. Today, we're joined with Anthony Oakley, Cornelius Young, Beth Smith, and Chuck Roth from DC Different Drummers. Hi, y'all. How y'all doing today? Doing great. Very good, thank you. Doing well. Fantastic. All right, so can you tell us a little bit about DC Different Drummers? What exactly is this group? DC Different Drummers is the LGBTQ plus allies uh, band organization in the DC area. We've been around since 1980. So this is, uh, we just passed our 40th, kind of still in our elongated 40th year. And we have, it started with a marching band and we also have a symphonic band and a jazz ensemble. Do you, does your marching band have like, um, forgive me, I don't know the words, but like those people with the flags and all that stuff in addition to the instruments? <laughs> yes, we actually do have Color Guard. Uh, okay. In fact, they're growing. We just got a, a new uh, caption head for that by the name of Antares Lees, who's actually got 30 years of experience in DCI and Winter Guard and all, you can name it. She's been there, especially with college groups as well. So we're on the rise when it comes to Color Guard. And of course, we've had some amazing twirlers as well. Are we talking about twirling a baton, a baton. or like our bodies? Okay, yeah, that's a what baton. I <laughs> Well, I don't know if we do twirling bodies, but. Well, we you never know. I think, I feel like I've seen some people do cartwheels in the street as part of, with like in front of a marching band. So I don't know. I might be guilty of that myself. Uh, so if somebody wants to join, let's say they haven't played since high school, played since college, uh, can they join? Yes, absolutely. Come on in, get that, get that horn. Like we used to advertise, you know, you're out of the closet. It's time your horn was out of the closet. And we, <laughs> you know, a, a wide range of membership. Generally, everyone's played through at least high school. Um, we have some people that are music teachers, that were music majors. We have, you know, a few really accomplished players. Our more typical player is somebody that played through high school and college, but that wasn't their profession at all. And they just love music. We have a lot of people that have come back after not playing for 10, 20 years and 
it takes a little time to get back in shape, yes, but we're there to support them in any way we can. And the music is a wide range of abilities so that it's accessible to everyone who wants to, who wants to go after it. And we help them get there. What events do you have during the year? What kind of concerts do you all have, uh, do you prepare for throughout the year? So uh, we've got a couple, um, and I know that all three uh, ensembles have different, uh, kind of different seasons. Um, so I'll talk with the symphonic band. So for a symphonic band, our season usually runs late August, right before Labor Day. And we run through about March or April, depending on the year. And we'll do a concert in the fall, we're usually around November. We'll do a collaborative concert with the jazz band for the holidays, uh, right around December, usually third weekend of December. Um, then we'll take off time for the holidays. Then we'll come back in and uh, do a, a season to prepare a concert that will usually fall somewhere between late March and early April. April, And that's similar to the season that I know Cornelius. So Cornelius, if you want to talk about your season. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, we, we pretty much try to plan at least three main concerts. So, you know, a, a fall concert, the winter concert that Tony mentioned, as well as a spring concert. And, you know, with us being a jazz band, more popular music, we try to book some areas in DC or the surrounding areas. So um, we've performed at Jam and Java Art House, Milk Boy Art House. Uh, we perform at, you know, a couple of other places as well and are always looking to perform, you know, when someone, you know, calls and says, hey, can you play here? Like, sure. Pretty much we revolve around those main three and then anything else we can fit in, we fit in. Um, since we're on marching band, our schedule is, of course, more so during the summer months, during around Pride. And I'm very, of course, happy to share that we are always taking part of some Team DC Night Out events, such as Night Out at the Nationals, uh, DC United. But of course, we do a number of different events, too, such as Capital Pride, Baltimore Pride, New York City. We just did the New York City World Pride the DC High Heels race, we did the Cherry Blossom Parade in 2019, DC Chinese New Year, uh, as even as um, elaborate as taking part of the 2018 Major League Baseball All-Star Game opening ceremonies with a number of other groups as well. Absolutely. And did I hear that you guys play at some or all of the Washington Prodigy home games? Actually, that was a uh, endeavor that the marching band we did, and we teamed up with Cheer DC uh, in the past two years before the pandemic took place. And it was just like an all out football game that was just downright fun. <laughs> yes, we've been doing that for two years now for the awesome. pandemic. Can you share with us a personal experience or an impact that um, the DC's Different Drummers has had on your life? So, um, you know, one of the things for me personally, uh, before, even before I became the director, you know, um, I had just moved to Maryland in 2012. Um, and around 2013, believe it or not, February is usually a rough time for teachers. Uh, one morning I woke up, uh, I was grasping my chest and I realized I was really stressed out. And the one thing that I could think of was I need to find a place to play. Um, you know, and, you know, tuba and piano are my instruments. And so I just, you know, I got on the internet after I went and got everything checked out and, um, you know, saw that there was an organization that had a jazz band. I'm like, man, I want to play. You know, I, I, so I called up the director at the time and he's like, yeah, we got room for a pianist. And, um, you know, I came in, you know, sat down, sight read with the band and just loved it. Everyone was friendly. Everyone was kind. It was just a wonderful experience. And, you know, that's how I got to know the organization. So, you know, being able to become the director in 2017 was kind of like a giving back, like, wow, you know, this saved me from a lot of different stress that I could have went through. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's, you know, at this point, it's family, you know, it's wonderful. So. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Sure. Um, it, it's hard to give any one example of what this organization has, has become for me. It's extended family. I've met some of the closest, dearest friends I've had in my whole life. I moved here in the spring of 2004, following my partner out here for her career at the time from Minnesota, where I'd been part of the Ligba band up there. Um, and two years later, we split. And I, of course, had the option of staying or going back home. And 
the principal reason I stayed and I stood up in front of symphonic band and told them was because of the band and the friends and the connection and the sense of family and the quality of the music. And I'm so glad I stayed. I mean, I could easily, I miss winter. I would love to move back where I get snow all the time, but I would not find, you know, a band of these people in this quality um, in so many other places. And we've had uh, several couples um, meet and get married from this organization. We've had a number of people um, come in and transition uh, during their time with DCDD. And it's, it's a very personal and collectively powerful experience of music making and friendship and LGBTQ plus support and, and, and growth. And it's despite the transition of DC, um, at the, I, like I said, I've been here 17 years now and in symphonic band, there's maybe still a dozen people that were here when I first moved here and everyone else is new. Um, and even some of those people have come and gone and yet the continuity and the connection continues and grows. Um, I can't say enough about what this organization has meant to me. Very cool. Um, so Cornelius is a tuba player and a piano player. What are your favorite instruments to play? I, I play trumpet and euphonium when I'm in shape on either of them, which I'm not. Euphonium, I see the look on your face. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> euphonium is the best kept secret of the symphonic band. It, looks like a, it is essentially a baby tuba. Uh, in a symphony orchestra, it is used once in a blue moon and is sometimes called a Wagnerian tuba. And it's a great instrument because it gets all, and as a trumpet player, I love being, you know, out, you know, the lead voice in the group and all that. However, the euphonium has all the beautiful counter melody parts. We get the parts with the bassoon and the bass clarinet and the tenor sax and all the, the, the beautiful counter melody. So okay. it's a, a great combination of instruments. Someday I'll be in shape with one of them again. Yeah, no, that's great. I, uh, my senior year of high school, I tried out the bassoon for a little while and, uh, my hands, I swear, were just not big enough to wrap around that thing. <laughs> it was, it yeah. was hard. <laughs> uh, Chuck or Anthony, I want to give you a chance if you're interested in jumping in on this question. I'll jump in, but I do challenge that euphonium section. Cause I mean, that saxophone section is pretty jazzy. I mean, check out that section right there, <laughs> but, um, this organization has been a lot for me, you know, in uh, late 2016, when I took a teaching position out here, I came from the state of Ohio and I really just kind of came as like a lust puppy dog because I've been living in Ohio all of my life and I didn't know exactly where to go. I didn't know who to meet. And it was through the sports community here, like being part of uh, volleyball, uh, softball and DC gay flag football that I started to meet some friends where I actually met an individual who told me about DC's different drummers and got me involved. And of course, here I am today, as crazy as that is. But from just through sports and then just being part of DC's different drummers, I found a place where I actually felt much more comfortable, much more at home. I couldn't think of anything else other than to be here and share the music with our friends or cohorts as we do, you know? Um, this, this just completely was the epitome of my DC experience and still is today. I'm really thankful for being here. I'm no longer that lost puppy dog when I first came. <laughs> it was really hard for me, like Beth, to pinpoint um, one, one thing. Um, but there's two moments that I just want to share that kind of are my favorite parts, but also allude to a little bit of our mission. Um, in March of 2017, we did our spring concert um, titled Glitter and Be Gay. And it was a concert featuring LGBTQ composers. And the title of Glitter Be Gay comes from Leonard Bernstein's Candide, if you're familiar with Candide at all. Um, but we did an entire concert of LGBTQ plus composers. So we featured Leonard Bernstein, we Cole Porter, Tchaikovsky, Jerry Herman, Steve Reinecke, who's, if you, I don't know if you know the name Steve Reinecke, if you've ever gone to a National Symphony Orchestra Pops concert, he's the conductor. So he, he, was, a, he, he was on our program with a, a piece. We also featured Julie Giroux, who is a, a living 
uh, uh, lesbian composer. And her music most recently was the fanfare for the entrance of the vice president on inauguration day. Ah, So it was very cool that her music got featured there, but we did a piece by her. But what was really cool is we did a piece by Aaron Copeland called Lincoln Portrait. And what was cool about that, Lincoln Portrait is a piece written about, written in inspiration from the speeches of Abraham Lincoln. And so here we are an LGBTQ community band, LGBTQ plus community band, performing music of a gay iconic composer of the United States in a church that Lincoln visited when he was uh, in office (laughs) by featuring words that he spoke. And our guest um, narrator was Ruby Coronado of Casa Ruby, who is a trans iconic figure here in DC whose work is to, you know, help with discrimination and harassment and violence, anything against anyone's gender identity or, or expression. And she herself moved here from El Salvador. And that was happening just two or three blocks from the White House, where we just started a presidency uh, that we just ended. Uh, and we know, so the, the, so the dichotomy, the, 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 the placement of all that coming together um, in one place was just, for me, magical. Um, and then the second point, another very memorable moment, there was a group of our organization that we put together to create a panel, a discussion panel that we took to the Maryland Band Directors Association uh, to present to music teachers. And we presented an hour and a half long session to allow teachers uh, a little bit of a, of a window into what it's like to be an LGBTQ person and allowing them teaching techniques to go back to their classrooms and, and make more inclusive spaces. And so we did that in Maryland. And then a year later, Uh, that same presentation was picked up at an international conference. So in March of 2019, I was able to fly to Chicago and take that same panel that I created with the wonderful group of of DCDD musicians and apply it. um, Earlier, Beth mentioned the Lesbian and Gay Band Association, which is our umbrella organization nationally. So we went and represented the Lesbian and Gay Band Association at this international conference where hundreds of teachers benefited from the words and stories of our band here in Washington, D.C. So that those two moments, I just think, are very, very cool and speak to our inclusivity, our, our underlying, you know, our mission is just to get together and play some cool music. But there's some, <laughs> but there's so many far outreaching things that have come from the activities that we do together and, the, and bringing these voices and ideas together. So that, I think they're just really cool. For me, those stick out. If I may add a couple thoughts, Tony's comments made me remember a couple of pieces of music that we've played played over the years. In my 15 years, there's been a number of musical highlights that I don't remember all of them, but it reminds me that the piece he mentioned, Lincoln Portrait um, by Aaron Copeland has been a little bit of a touchstone for us. Previously, a number of years ago, we played it and we had Frank Kameny be our our MC doing the reading for the piece. And... uh, anyone listening, if you know his name, he's one of the leaders in the um, gay rights movement from many years ago and was a Washington DC resident. So that was a very special treat to have him. Uh, Another big thing in the history of the band is a number of years ago, we commissioned a piece called Quilt Panels. And it's a multi-movement piece about the AIDS quilt. So we have a number of uh, musical highlights as Tony described along with our our personal highlights over the years. Yeah, that sounds great. So how do you all, real quick, like, how do you all pick your music or what goes through your mind when you're trying to pick up, pick something out for a specific concert or season? Um, Switching gears just a little bit. It is 2021. We've come a long way. We've always got more improvements to make, but tell me why or if you think it's still important to have an LGBTQ plus specifically focused uh, music group? Well, I can, I can chime in. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's, it's 2021, but as I presented in the, in the conference, the, the, you know, one of my slides in that conference was like, whatever the year, well, the year was 2018 then. But I said, you know, the, I, the first slide was 2018. Do we really still only have this conversation? <laughs> um, and unfortunately that is, that is very true. Um, there, we, especially those of us that are living in metropolitan areas. Um, we, have, uh, we have access to, to communities that are very open and accepting and at the same time uh, might be right next door to communities that are not. Um, and so it can be, 
it's very important to allow everybody to have a place that they want to go for whatever reason. And what's what's great about the organization DCDD is that I, I love whenever I, I find out, you know, that everyone's background is just so unique and um, the ability to bring all those individuals together, whether they, however they identify, um, whether they're straight, gay, bi, uh, if they're going through a transition while they're with us, um, they're, it's, it's, it's a time that you need to have a community to help you. Um, and so, you know, when I think about the fact that I'm a local Washingtonian and, you know, I was born in 1978, so I'm 43 now, um, but in my lifetime, I've seen, you know, I was young during the AIDS crisis. I, I do remember, I'm old enough to remember it. I'm old enough to remember uh, when you could not talk about yourself. Um, I am a person that came out to my father kneeling at his casket because it just wasn't, wasn't acceptable to talk about. Uh, and so when I graduated college and started to establish myself, I looked for uh, places that I could go once a week and not and escape judgment um, and just be able to be, be Tony, find out who Tony is. And uh, now again, I'm, I'm growing up now and I, I'm a high school teacher in the area and I, 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 uh, I'm grown up and, but I see students now that don't have to go through that struggle that I went through sitting next to students that are still going through that struggle. So to have the ability uh, for someone to come to a rehearsal because they have a common love of music and possibly find a mentor relationship or a romantic relationship or a friend relationship or just a presence is just so important. I think there will, um, I think the last four years in particular have shown us how much further we have to go before we'll be fully accepted without people having to be afraid of coming out. And as Tony said, there will, you know, some people don't have to go through that struggle. Some people are, and, you know, every pride will be somebody's first pride and somebody's last pride. And I think it's really critical that we continue to be, here as an LGBTQ plus community for those people who won't have an easy path because those people will always exist. And as Tony said, there's a lot of different activities you can do. Um, I feel that it's really important to continue ha to have music organizations because yes, the sports are great. I'm a former softball player, but it's a different experience in the arts. You know, you can talk about all the all the things kids learn in terms of responsibility and group work and and that sort of thing, um, but the music experience is a it's a it's a depth of emotional connection that is very different from the athletic experience. And I think it's important that we maintain music groups along with all the other activities out there. Um. As I shared earlier, I'm from Ohio, where I spent 30 years of my life. And having grown up and having the, the opportunity to meet a number of people through college, as I did, um, there's so many people that are always hurt that don't feel that they have a place to belong, you know? Um, I've only been here in DC since late 2016, which I, it's crazy for me to think that that's almost five years now, personally. <laughs> the, when it comes to LGBTQ band and talking about the worldwide language of music, you know, I think there's always re relevance for us here because when we're talking about LGBTQ, we're, and let alone our mission statement, we're talking about promotion, the ideas of inclusivity, diversity, continuity, community, and coming together. And music does that in such a powerful way. So, you know, my, my reasons as far as like, you know, why we have the organization, you know, I come from a, a different background than the other three. I'm definitely an ally. But, you know, I have seen so many of my students struggle, you know, with their identity, 
and their place in the world and how they fit in. And I think how awesome is it that, you know, they go out into the world and if they're looking for somewhere to play and they can be themselves and they don't have to hide, they don't have to hide who they are. They don't have to be someone different. They can be themselves, even if it's just for two hours on one night with their instrument. And, you know, it's just, it's so important. I mean, no one, no one in the world wants to have to be someone else all the time or pretend or to hide or, you know, they, you know, we all want to be ourselves. And so, you know, I, I think it's just so awesome that this organization and other organizations exist where people can feel safe, where they can be themselves, where they can enjoy themselves, you know, and that's important. I mean, you know, no ill saying some butts about it. That's important. 100%. All right. Well, I want to thank you guys for joining us this evening. This has been super fun and informational. Uh, before we let you go, just one of you, uh, if you could plug your website, any social media handles or anything else you want to get out there that people might information people might need to find you. Oh, we should have Adam here. He's great at doing this. But our website is www.dcdd.org. I'm uh, of the older variety. I don't do all the social media stuff, but we've got Facebook and we have Twitter. We have Instagram. All right. Thanks again, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank, Thank you for having us. Really right. appreciate it. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston for the design of our logo. Also, our music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.